0: The realization of a perfect crime, that's rare. There's always something. Mistakes are made in the heat of the moment. Evidence carelessly deposited at the scene. A particle of genetic identity. An unexpected witness. Electronic tracking. And aberrant behavior that proves incriminating. When a knife is used, it's nearly impossible to wipe away all trace evidence of blood. Those who think they're smart enough to commit murder without consequence usually find themselves in the dock eventually. The public release of the affidavit that led to the recent arrest of Brian Koberger offers grim details of the evidence collected by law enforcement in the stabbing murders of four students in Moscow, Idaho. If the accused assumed that he was sufficiently schooled in criminology and forensics to avoid detection, he was badly mistaken. His arrogance betrayed him. He wasn't as smart or as clever as he thought. The trail he left behind is littered with guilt. Attorney Fox News legal analyst and two time New York Times bestselling author. This is The Brief with Greg Jarrett. Billionaire investor Michael Pinto has a warning for you. Don't listen to anyone who tells you how bad the crash will be and when it exactly will happen. Nobody knows. But the CEO of Wells Fargo warns the worst is yet to come for Americans. Pay attention to the economic data. Inflation is at a 40-year high. And make no mistake about it, the recession is real, no matter how the White House tries to change the definition. That's why Bloomberg, Goldman Sachs, and Jim Cramer are all calling for gold to surge. Gold and silver have historically moved opposite the stock market and in the long term can preserve your purchasing power. Call 800-809-8500 and Lear Capital, the number one rated gold company, will present the same trusted options they have been giving successful investors since 1997. At Lear Capital, most IRA rollovers qualify for no IRA fees for up to five years. Their current incentive offers up to $15,000 in bonus silver for well-qualified new customers. A three-minute call can protect your portfolio with the power of real, physical gold. Call 800-809-8500 today. Again, that's 800-809-8500 and tell them Greg Jarrett sent you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Brief. I'm Greg Jarrett. It took a while for the law to catch up with Brian Koberger, but it turns out there was plenty to work with. At the scene of the quadruple murders, the suspect recklessly, or stupidly, left a major clue. His behavior, both before and after the heinous crimes, only fortified the case against him. So let's begin with a brief look at what we know so far. There is strong circumstantial evidence that incriminates Koberger, and I'll list them. His DNA was found on the snap button of a tan leather knife sheaf left on the bed of two murder victims. The survivor in the house spotted a masked intruder immediately after the murder's that happens to fit his general description. A vehicle, just like his white Hyundai Electra, was spotted near the crime scene at the time of the murders. He turned off his cell phone during the time of the attack, allegedly to avoid being tracked. A car matching his own was seen speeding away from the scene of the crime immediately after the murders. He thoroughly washed and cleaned his car, which implies that he tried to cover up damning blood evidence. Electronic data placed his cell phone in the vicinity of that very home a dozen times leading up to the murders, which is evidence of stalking. Then he got out of town. Flight is admissible evidence of consciousness of guilt. Finally, He allegedly tried to avoid fingerprint identification and DNA collection by wearing gloves after the attack when he went shopping and hiding his garbage elsewhere, again, consciousness of guilt. Now, Kohlberger's attorneys will likely attack the DNA as unreliable. They'll challenge the collection methods or the lab analysis or both. This became the template for defense attorneys after the O.J. Simpson double murder case in 1995. Here, the accused may claim that he sold the knife or sheath or both to somebody else or suggest that it was all stolen, but leaving his trace DNA on the snap button. Well, good luck with that. That's a tough sell to a jury because there appears to be no one else's genetics, on the knife sheath. It's possible that police and prosecutors may have additional DNA evidence not disclosed in the affidavit. For example, Koberger could have cut himself accidentally during the fury of slashing and stabbing, dropping his own blood at the crime scene, just as O.J. Simpson did. If other forms of his DNA were recovered, This would be exceedingly difficult for the defense to counter. The potential of blood evidence in the car may prove key. Despite frantic cleaning efforts, Koberger's automobile may still contain the blood of the victims. The killer would have been covered with blood spatter, which then gets transferred to the interior of the car. After impoundment, forensic specialists would have sprayed Luminol chemicals throughout the inside of the vehicle. Fluorescent lights can detect blood up to 10,000 times dilution, and specks of blood, too tiny to be seen with the unaided eye, can be revealed by the luminol. I suspect the defendant's Elantra lit up like a pinball machine. Moreover, blood is a liquid, it has a tendency to seep into cracks and crevices that defy cleaning. If a victim's DNA has been discovered there, conviction is almost a certainty. Speaking of Simpson, the same racially divisive elements that helped him get away with murder in Los Angeles, that won't play in Idaho. This is not a race case. The Moscow jury will not be a liberal panel riven with anti-cop bias in the aftermath Of the Rodney King beating. Koberger does not have the benefit of celebrity as Simpson did, nor does he have the financial resources to hire a dream team of lawyers. The accused is represented by a public defender, albeit a good one. Let's talk about motive. The law does not demand that prosecutors present evidence of a motive, but it certainly helps to persuade jurors. So far, the motive is unclear. The fact that Koberger was pursuing a doctorate in criminology suggests he may have thought that he was so knowledgeable, so smart, that he could commit murders without consequence. This is reminiscent of the infamous Leopold and Loeb Thrill Killers case in 1924 in what became known as the Crime of the Century. Two well-educated young men decided to prove their superior intellect by committing the perfect crime without getting caught. They failed spectacularly, were quickly apprehended, and confessed to kidnapping and killing 14-year-old Bobby Franks. Even smart people make dumb mistakes in the frenzy of a murderous moment. In Idaho, nearly 100 years later, leaving behind the knife sheath was a colossal, idiotic mistake made by the killer. Prosecutors will work diligently to establish some intersection between Koberger and one or more of the victims. Why were they targeted? Did he harbor a grudge? Did one of the women reject or offend him in some fashion? To this end, his electronic devices will be scoured to try to locate some connection. Anyone and everyone who knew the accused or ever talked with him will be interviewed to create a portrait of a man who was disposed to kill. Any comments or atypical behavior by him will be scrutinized for clues of motive or incriminating statements. Finally, let's talk about the death penalty. Yes, the possibility of death as punishment always makes the case harder for prosecutors. Knowing that their vote could send a man to his death, jurors will want to be absolutely convinced of guilt, no doubt whatsoever. At the same time, the threat of capital punishment can give prosecutors an advantage. A guilty defendant might be disposed to confess in exchange for a life sentence, but that won't happen until the defense team fully evaluates the strength of the prosecution's evidence and the viability, or lack thereof, of their own counter-defense. If Brian Koberger is as arrogant as some people say, I doubt he would ever cop a plea to save his life. Joining me now to talk about it is Brian Claypool, who is a veteran trial attorney in Southern California and one of the best. Brian, thanks so much for joining the brief. In my opening remarks, uh, I offer the opinion that the commission of a perfect crime is exceedingly rare. There's always something left behind that uh, points to, in this particular case, a murderer. So it doesn't surprise me that police investigators and the FBI managed to collect some pretty incriminating evidence. Your thoughts?
1: Hey, Greg, great to be with you. Yeah, I I agree. Generally speaking, it's hard to have the perfect crime, especially here where you have four victims, right? He, He allegedly murdered four people. So there's four opportunities to have his DNA somewhere. And, uh, you know, so it's not surprising to me that, there, that, that investigators have found some DNA at the scene of the crime, albeit maybe we could talk later about the sheath from the knife. That's a little surprising that it's so evident. It's right next to one of the bodies. There's no blood on it. But remember, there's two other crime scenes as well. There's three total. You've got the crime scene itself. You have the automobile, the white Elantra. And then you also have his apartment in Pullman. So my hope here is that we find some more forensic evidence, which I think to your point, we are and we will find more forensic evidence in that car and also in his apartment.
0: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about what I think is the most important evidence of all. And that's fairly obvious, this tan leather knife sheath. With a distinctive U.S. Marine Corps insignia on it, um, and in fact, investigators may be able to tie him to its purchase. Uh, but his DNA is on the snap button, so one can envision the killer standing over his victims who were sleeping, and he, you know, moves his hand probably his knife hand toward the knife handle and with his left hand, assuming he's right handed, he unsnaps the button and leaves, you know, trace evidence on the snap button. So yes, that's circumstantial evidence, but it implies he was there and jurors can reasonably infer, can't they, that he wielded the knife.
1: Yeah, great, great point. That right now is the most powerful piece of forensic evidence. That said, though, Greg, defense lawyers, and again, I'm not not saying Koberger didn't do this. I mean, that's why we have a court system. But look, his lawyers have to put up a defense. And the way I see this playing out is they are going to argue a trial within a trial. They're going to argue you can't rely on any evidence that was collected and processed at the scene of this crime. Why? Well, because about eight hours went by before somebody really came to look at what happened in the house, you know, from 4 a.m. to about noon the next day. And then you had some friends that were called before 911 was called. So every movement they made, everything they touched, everything they observed, everything they heard is going to be admissible in evidence. Why why is that all important? Because what Koberger's lawyers are going to argue is you can't trust the crime scene. It, 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 you know, it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a place where there was contamination, right? Let's talk a little bit about that footprint too, right? There, there's a, there was a footprint that's allegedly been found. His lawyers are going to be all over that, Greg. They're going to say, well, look, there are other people, there are roommates in the house, there were other people, friends in the house, who matriculated throughout the house. There might have been, par- there had to have been paramedics that also came in the house. So footprints, you know, arguably been contaminated. But look back to that sheath. I- I'm with you, but I, I mean, Greg, can I ask you a question? I mean, you're you are one of the most intelligent legal minds I've ever met. Doesn't it doesn't it seem just from an instinctive standpoint, purely, a bit bewildering? That a guy like Koberger, who is who, who's a criminal, you know cr- what a criminal forensics uh, uh, student who 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 wanted to volunteer with the police department to study forensics, isn't it a bit dumbfounding that he simply is going to leave this sheath right next to one of the right. deceased bodies? Right. I, I and then the other the last comment I'll make about this sheath that just blows my mind. Is I saw today on TV on Fox that you know one of the mattresses was retrieved and you know that's that's evidence now and that it looked like there were some blood stains on the mattress. One can expect there to be blood stains on the mattress. There were a lot of knife wounds and there's going to be blood spatter associated with uh, a, a, a struggle like that. And I and I saw a picture of the mattress too. It's it's rather small. Just so your listeners know, it's not this huge. King size right. mattress, so I just still I, I I find it startling. He just it's just left there next to a body, so everybody can see it, and there's no blood on it.
0: Yeah, well, let me just address that as sort of devil's advocate, as if I were the prosecutor, although my experience was as a defense attorney. But I know how prosecutors work, and they will say, "Look, smart people make stupid mistakes." especially in the frenzy and fury of a quadruple uh, murder committed by slashing and stabbing the, you know the human mind enters into this strange dissociated state you're so focused on on the killings themselves one can imagine that you know you're forgetting about other things like not leaving evidence. And nobody knows why he dropped the sheath, um, but uh, assuming it was Koberger and he's the killer, and that's certainly the prosecution's case, they're going to say he just, you know, he absent-mindedly dropped it on the bed as he engaged in these heinous killings. And, you know, it reminds me, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, of the infamous Leopold and Loeb case, the so-called crime of the century back in 1924. Uh, Two uh, young and really well-educated and highly intelligent uh, two guys, friends, decided that they were going to prove their superior intellect by committing the perfect crime. And they kidnapped 14-year-old Bobby Franks. They murdered him and dumped his body. They left, uh, you know, a smorgasbord of clues in particular. One of them left his own personal eyeglasses that were easily identifiable next to the body. Now that's sort of the same thing as leaving the knife sheath next to the two first victims in Idaho. And again, these guys, Leopold and Loeb, were really smart, but they were quickly apprehended and confessed. Uh, so, you know, again, I come back to what I anticipate to be the prosecution's argument that smart people make dumb mistakes in the frenzy of a murderous moment. What do you, what do you say to that? I mean, that, that's, that's
1: an excellent point. Um, especially, uh, Greg, given the timeline, right? There wasn't a lot of time for him to pull this off and and to think things through. You're right. I mean, it was a frenzy. Because let's talk a little bit about that timeline, too. We, you know, the the arrest uh, warrant affidavit, the probable cause affidavit, gave a broader timeline of 4 a.m. to 4.30. But we now know that one of the young ladies... um, who was uh, deceased was on her TikTok at was on a TikTok app on her phone at 4:12 a.m. Right. And then, Greg, you combine that with the video footage of Koberger allegedly driving away in the white car around 4:20. Let's give him a minute if he's in the house to get from the, the house to the car. You know, arguably, you're looking at a at a six to seven minute now window of opportunity for. Koberger to kill four people all by himself. So two points flow from that. One is that gets to your point, which is a great point, which he just, you know, probably had a brain slip and left it there. Um, You know, to be devil's advocate for your argument too. And again, I'm not minimizing the forensic evidence, but you know, me being a defense lawyer, you know, another argument I would make is, wow, it seems really improbable with that, more limited timeline of six to seven minutes rather than thirty for right. one man to brutally kill four people by himself, which to me suggests there might be somebody else that that assisted um, in the crime, and I and I think his right. lawyers are gonna are gonna work a lot with this truncated uh, timeline as well. One last thought on the sheath. I mean, it had U.S. Marines on it. Maybe is it possible, Greg, that he? If Koberger was there, he, he drops it there thinking there's no none of his DNA on it to maybe mislead the investigators into thinking it's somebody military.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, you just don't know. Yeah. Um, I want to uh, bring up one other thing. You know, you know this uh, investigators when they're preparing a, a probable cause arrest warrant don't always they don't always put everything they have in the affidavit. Sometimes they withhold something. Uh, And in this case, I'm sort of wondering whether he left his own blood at the scene, which cops have been able to identify. And and here's why I say this. I covered for nine months in Los Angeles, inside the courtroom, the O.J. Simpson case, uh, where to me, it was an absolute case of guilt. Uh, There are a lot of reasons why the jury found otherwise, but he it was uncontested that he had a deep cut on his left hand. He was right handed and prosecutors theorized that in the stabbing and, uh, and slashing of the two victims, OJ accidentally cut himself, which is understandable. Uh, and especially if there was some resistance, which there was in this case, there are in Idaho defensive wounds on, on some of the victims. So they may have tried to, to fight back. He may have accidentally cut himself, which is why, by the way, I think, uh, the cops pulled him over at the behest of the FBI as he was driving from Idaho to Pennsylvania. They wanted to look at his hands, uh, to see if there were any scarring evidence of cuts. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised. And and how about you? If if he cut himself and left his blood at the scene,
1: yeah, Greg, great great analogy with the uh, with the OJ case. Um, I, I agree with you. And he, he, here's how I see this playing out. I think obviously you you made a great point about the sheath from the knife. That that's a game. That's a potential game changer piece of evidence. And just so your listeners are aware. I don't think we yet know that they took the DNA swab from Koberger and have matched that with the DNA on the sheath. Right now they've got the father's DNA and through genealogy, they connected Coburger. but, but let's give them the assumption, right? Let's, let's, let's assume that they're going to link Koberger's DNA to that sheath. In my mind, to give you a sports analogy, it, it's the prosecution's case to, it, to, to, to lose. I mean, they, they, If, 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 if they can convince that jury amid all the other confusion that that sheath is there, that's his, that's Koberger's DNA, then it's their case to lose because even, even Greg, if we don't find the knife, it's as if that sheath is the knife, right? So bear with me. So that, that's, that's the game changer right now. But my, my concern in this case, I don't want to say fear But my concern is you and I talked about it on TV the other night about OJ. I know you feel like that's more political, but but here's my concern here is 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 does one juror get caught up in some of the the confusion and the inconsistencies with some of the other alleged evidence? And then that percolates in their mind to maybe to maybe possibly do an acquittal. Let me give you a quick example by what I mean. Let's talk a little bit about that young, you know, the young lady who, who, who was a, a roommate who saw, you know, said she saw Koberger, you know, coming out of the house, right? Or coming by her room, you know, toward the exit. Just right. bear with me for a second. I mean, put aside that she didn't call for eight hours. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about her description. What she asked, for example, when he walked by her room, did he have a knife in his hand? Was there a knife in his hand, Greg? Was yeah. she asked that by law enforcement? She should have been. Because where else would that knife be? She didn't yeah. mention it. Well, she knife. may
0: have been, and it's not in the affidavit. Oh, well, I, could be. But I,
1: I, yeah, I mean, I, to me, I would think that's such a compelling piece of information that that right. should have been right out front. But my concern is, did law enforcement ask her that? Because think yeah. it through. The sheath is on the bed. You know, you've got a bare knife in your hand. You can't just put it in your back pocket. He's wearing a hoodie. I think she said, "Where's he going to put the knife?" So, did they ask her? Does she know? Did she see a knife in his in his in his hand? And uh, you know, and another thing, real quick, she said she saw him go. I thought she said she saw him go out the sliding door. Uh, if he exited, where his like you know, to your point about blood evidence being there, his fingerprints should be on. One of those doors, if, if she was asked whether he had gloves on, was she yeah. asked also, was he wearing gloves when he was on the way out? I mean, she if she could recognize a bushy eyebrow, she should be able to recognize whether there he was wearing yeah. gloves.
0: You there, know, there are a lot of explanations for that. Somebody who's startled and frightened at a masked man dressed in black that she doesn't recognize um, walking right by her in the middle of the night. Um, but I want to come back to, again, the O.J. Simpson case. And we, you and I talked about this when we were on the air on Saturday night. Uh, let's compare it to the O.J. Simpson case. Yes, he was acquitted, wrongfully in my judgment. Uh, and I saw all of the evidence. I have never, in the thousand plus trials I've covered as a journalist, I've never seen such overwhelming evidence of guilt. But there, there were political and social reasons uh, that led to the acquittal but that doesn't apply here. Uh you know OJ's defense team blamed racist cops who allegedly planted the DNA evidence, which was utter nonsense, but the jury bought it. They wanted to buy it. Um but you know this in Idaho is not a race case. There is not a celebrity defendant here. There's not unlimited resources to hire a dream team, the best defense that money can buy. He's represented by a public defender, although She's quite a a good one by record. So, you know, all of those things suggest to me that the template that the defense will use to challenge the integrity of the DNA evidence, the collection methods, the laboratory analysis, that ain't going to work in Moscow, Idaho. What do you think?
1: Um, I mean, I I agree with that to a certain extent. I'm, I'm not sure 100%. I uh, agree with that. Here's why. Um, I, I know is not a celebrity. He's not OJ. He doesn't get, you know, a 10 yard head start and a 100 yard dash because the world knows he's a famous football player. I get that, Greg. But at the same time, Koberger to me doesn't fit, you know, a prototypical type of alleged murderer. He's not some, you know, uh, disheveled looking dude uh, that's got a prior criminal history of domestic violence that's got a prior restraining order against him for, for harming women uh, and, and potentially one of the women here he's got, and I haven't seen it yet, but I'm not seeing much of a a personal connection with any of the victims yet. OJ had that and he still wasn't, wasn't convicted. So I, you know, a jury's going to look at him, Greg, and he's not the worst looking guy on the planet. And, you know, he's going to be dressed in a suit and tie at this trial. And I, You know, I'm not saying it's going to be an OJ, but I'm not saying it's a slam dunk as you think it's going to be because there's no racial component. Um, And and look, I'm not suggesting that this should happen, but depending on how some of the evidence plays out, especially at the crime scene uh, and the processing of that evidence, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm hoping that lawyers for Koberger don't try to claim that some of the evidence was tampered with or in some way. Planet, but yeah. I, don't, I Again, I I, I think it's I, I think you're right. It's not likely to be an OJ, but I wouldn't
0: you know I wouldn't say that with total certainty. Well, as long as the prosecution doesn't hire Chris Darden and Marcia Clark, they, you know, they, they should be able to present a pretty powerful, compelling case. Yeah, uh, I want to I want to go back to something else you brought up, uh, yeah. which I find interesting. Um, yes, there are three different crime scenes. Actually, four if you count his parents' place. But uh, to me, uh, one of the most important crime scenes is the automobile, which he reportedly washed and cleansed thoroughly. The first thing, once you impound that automobile, that investigators do is have uh, the forensic scientists come in and they spray luminol, on the inside, uh, this chemical that can detect uh, any any hint of blood, even blood that has been diluted by cleansing up to ten thousand times, it can identify a particle, a speck that cannot be seen by the naked eye. I'm betting that you know the inside. You know that you use these fluorescent lights, and if it shades blue in locations, you know, that blood was once there or is still there. I'm betting that the inside of his car lit up like a Christmas tree with shades of fluorescent blue. And it, and you know, blood is a liquid and, and it will seep into cracks and crevices and tiny little spaces that even the best cleansing can't get rid of. And I'm sure that they are taking every part of the interior of that automobile apart, piece by piece. And, you know, on a steering wheel, sometimes there are threads and so forth. So, I mean, they'll pull out every single strand of thread looking for uh, the victim's blood. And if they find it, uh, I mean, I don't know how you can explain that away.
1: Yeah, Greg, I, I, th- this we're 100% in agreement on. The first TV appearance I did shortly after Coburg was arrested, that this is what I talked about. And what, what do I mean by that? You've, you, you've, you've set forth four crime scenes. I think the prosecution wins this case and gets a conviction because of forensic evidence they are going to find in the, in, in, in the other crime scenes that we're talking about. That's what they need, right? right. Think about it. They're, they've got some forensic evidence at the crime scene. We know defense lawyers are going to attack the crime scene as being contaminated, right? So their best bet, and I think you're right, I think Koberger is going to get hung from forensic evidence in two places, actually. The car, for sure. Excellent point about the blood. That guy, he Koberger can clean till the cows come home that car, but they are going to detect blood in that car. That's That's one thing. And and here's the point I'm trying to make, Greg, that that's that's a crime scene that nobody's toyed with. There haven't been any other people in that car. That's an uncontaminated crime scene. So that's one thing. I think another game changer we've yet to hear from is the is the, the is potentially Koberger's skin tissue under the fingernails of one or two of the of the girls who had defensive wounds. We haven't yet heard anything. Maybe prosecutors hold, holding back that, that medical forensic evidence from the autopsy report. I think you might get something with that as well. I can't imagine that these right. girls weren't fighting, scratching, screaming, and that there's some of his DNA in their fingernails. And then, yeah. and then to your point as well, potential hair fiber, right? There might have been some hair fiber from any of the victims somewhere on Koberger. That either lands on the seat, on the floor of the car, or in his apartment. If we can talk briefly about that, they ought to be mm-hmm. tearing apart everything in his Pullman apartment. To your point, from the flooring to the bathroom, you know this guy took a shower after this happened. I'd be, I'd be looking at the inside the shower, the enamel inside there, tearing that apart. The drain. Uh, yeah, the drain. And you know what? Else? One other thing, I'll leave you with. This is fascinating. I saw this about a year ago on a cold case. Um, I don't know if you know this, but you can actually call the electric company, whoever provides electric for Pullman. Right? It's the city of Pullman. I, I live in Pasadena. It's the city of Pasadena. Right. And you, you can, you, you, you can't technically find whether he used a washing machine for an hour or so at four thirty in the morning. Right. But what you can do, what you can find out through through the electrical company is whether there was a spike in electrical usage, either if he has a washer and dryer in his apartment, right? Was there a spike? Was there, you know, a lot more electricity being used than normal at 4.30, 5 in the morning, 6 in the morning? And let's give him the, let's say there's a, a washer and dryer in a common area you know, if it's a place in this apartment building, they can, this, the electric, whoever provides electric can also go and check what the usage was in that, in that room. And maybe there's some video surveillance as well in that room to show that this dude was using a washer and dryer that, that if, if they can get something to that effect too, to your point earlier on consciousness of guilt, and
0: we know he's cleaning the, the bloody clothes. Yeah. So he turns off his cell phone at the time of the murders. Gee, what a coincidence. You know, during that time frame, his cell phone's on all the way up till close to the, uh, you know, 4 a.m. time frame. And then he shuts it off. And then after the time frame of the murders, turns it back on. On top of that, uh, cellular uh, tower tracking shows that uh, prosecutors will say he was casing the place a dozen times. He goes from Washington State, 15 minutes away, to the area in and around the home where the four people were murdered. Uh, That's also pretty powerful circumstantial evidence. I don't know how he's going to explain that because, you know, where they're living, you know, is a fairly rural area. So, What are you doing out there in advance of the murders a dozen times? And by the way, what are you doing there the morning uh, of the murders after the murders, several hours after the murders? And I think before police were called, you know, it's the old, you know, the killer returns to the scene of the crime. He wants to know what's going on. So it it goes again to my point that uh, people who think they're so smart and can get away with crimes, aren't as smart as they think they are. Uh, but let, let me move on to one other thing. Kohlberger is suspected of posting in a Facebook group uh, after the murders under an alias by the name of Papa Roger talking about the case. And here's a quote by this supposed person, Papa Roger, quote, Of the evidence released, the murder weapon has been consistent as a large fixed blade knife. This leads me to believe they found the sheath, end of quote. But here's the thing, Brian. No one at that time of the posting knew anything about a sheath. That was withheld by police. It wasn't made public until after Coburger's arrest. Now, that strikes me as, once again, pretty persuasive uh, circumstantial evidence that implicates the accused. What do you think? I, I think that that
1: Papa Rogers comment about the sheath is, is, is a game changer. If prosecutors can prove through, uh, you know, Internet forensics. I mean, there's specialists out there that can try to right back down and prove that that's him. I mean, I'm not sure the intric- intricacy of that, but boy, if they can prove that Coburger was authoring Papa Rogers, I, I I think you just nailed it. That that's, yeah. that that's that he he's, he's done because that she, cause like you said, nobody else knew about the sheath. It's there at that point, Greg, in my opinion, you don't, you don't even need to find the knife. Everybody's talking about, yeah. let's go find the murder weapon. You don't need it. He just admitted to the murder weapon through that post. I mean, what an idiot, right? If that guy, if that guy, if that truly is, I mean, we don't know yet for sure, right? But if that truly is Papa Rogers, he thought he was too smart for himself, just like you've been saying throughout this podcast. I mean, that's yeah. that's that's devastating for him.
0: It is. Uh, a couple more questions, Brian, and I'll let you go. But um, there are multiple pieces of evidence that would go to what I referred to earlier as consciousness of guilt. It generally happens after uh, a a crime takes place. In this particular case, Koberger fled the area. You know, he he drove all the way, not immediately, but he drove all the way uh, from Washington State to Pennsylvania. Now, he may say, well... You know it was getting close to the holiday time and you know i I was going home for the holidays okay all right but he also reportedly wore gloves in grocery stores and dumped his own household garbage in neighbors trash cans again is he trying to avoid uh forensic detection is that consciousness of guilt it could be couldn't it yeah excellent point i think i think Consciousness of guilt evidence
1: is extremely helpful when you've got a piece or pieces of forensic evidence as the anchor. And and it's looking more and more to your points about they're going to find blood. Uh, I I think they're going to find some skin tissue if they find we've got the sheath right now. But if if you've got some forensic and then you've got the consciousness of guilt, I, I think what that does, Greg. In a juror's mind, that's just that just seals it. You know, I think the fleeing part is a little less persuasive to me than going to the right. store uh, because he, he didn't he didn't he didn't clear out his apartment. He just went back to Pennsylvania. He could argue. I just went there for the holidays. But look, you go to a store, you're wearing gloves and you're pa- paying cash and you're and you're buying cleaning supplies. I said since day one, we need his, his financial records. We need his bank we need we need we need his online anything he's done online banking where he's gone somewhere, where he's bought something. Maybe he did pay cash, but there's got to be surveillance of him buying these cleaning supplies uh, in a store. The, the, to me, the, the cleaning supplies would be just a devastating. That's that's devastating circumstantial evidence.
0: Let me hit the last point here. The death penalty is on the table. Idaho has uh, capital punishment. That's um. Y- y- It can be for prosecutors an advantage and a disadvantage. Uh, The disadvantage is that when jurors know that by their vote, they can send a man uh, to death, they want to be absolutely sure um, beyond a reasonable doubt, like a hundred percent sure. And that makes the case tougher for prosecutors, right? But the advantage may be that once Koberger sits down with his attorneys and they see the entirety of the incriminating evidence that uh, law enforcement is marshaled together against him, he may get a case of the for reals and say, I'm looking at death. And, you know, people like that uh, who commit these heinous crimes, they're generally cowards, So he may actually consider copying a plea in order to save his life. I'll plead guilty. I'll confess. I'll explain it all. Uh, I'll throw myself in the mercy of the court if you'll give me life behind bars instead of death. And, you know, frankly, uh, there are a great many people who believe, myself included, that that's a greater punishment than death. I know that one family member of one of the victims has uh, stated she wants uh, the killer to die. But she may reconsider that. I mean, it's, it's pretty awful and torturous to spend the rest of your life behind bars, especially when you're a young person as, as he and he is. That, that may actually be the ultimate penalty, not death. So I, I suppose the possibility of a plea um, can always be on the table, right?
1: Yeah, n- another great point, and and just to give your your listeners some some you know a little bit of contrast, you know even in California where our, our governor is not allowing any any executions at the time at the moment to take place, and even though we've got some radical DAs and especially here in L.A. County that aren't seeking the death penalty anymore, believe it or not, even as 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 long as a couple of years ago, I, I, I work on sometimes I work on child uh, sexual abuse cases where. Kids end up up getting murdered by uh, parents and then we go after the county DCFS for not safeguarding these kids. I've seen the death penalty sought uh, in a couple of those cases in the last few years, Greg, here, even here in California, very liberal state. Why? For the precise reason that you're talking about and why these prosecutors in Idaho should should do the same thing, because it gives prosecutors some room to work with. To 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 share their case with the defense lawyers. And just so everybody knows, the way criminal cases are, you gotta share your evidence. There's no, it's not hide and seek. You know that. So they're gonna have to share their case eventually with defense lawyers, to your excellent point. And boy, if you're sitting in if you're Coburger's lawyer six, eight months from now, and they get a trove of evidence that you and I have been talking about with blood, uh, possibly skin tissue, possibly hair fibers, with that mounting circumstantial evidence unless you've got the death penalty in play there's no leverage to plea bargain so i think they have to seek the death penalty and then and then allow themselves some room to to get a a a guilty plea and then he spends the rest of his life in jail without the possibility of parole and and look i i think you would i mean if i can ask you a question if you don't mind what would you how would you feel greg if that if that's what ended up happening, would you feel
0: closure in the case and it's justice? If I were a, a prosecutor, I, I, I would. Okay. Sim- sim- simply because, you know, forget the fact that, you know, you're certainly saving a lot of time, energy, resources and money in getting a guilty plea and not having to take the case to trial and spend 20 years 26 years in Idaho, uh, trying to enforce the death penalty. Um, again, I I'm convinced that it's a greater punishment life behind bars for a young person. Uh, and I, you know, I think that's justice. Uh, I, you know, not a fan of the death penalty, never have been. Um, I abide by my idol Clarence Darrow, who was virulently against uh, the death penalty. Uh, for a variety of reasons, which you know we needn't go into, but yeah i I would be persuaded that that's justice had, yeah,
1: I wanted to make one last point before we finish really quick. I sure know end here, but on the premeditation issue, I just wanted to talk to you about that a little bit because that's one of the elements uh, Prosecutors have to prove premeditation this was planned right and and before it carried out. Right now, all we've seen are, you know, the, the what, 12, 12 trackings of Coburger being in the area, casing, you know, allegedly casing the area. But I think, I want, you know, I, I just want to run this by you. I, I think we need to see, when this goes to trial, more concrete evidence, which I think we're going to find, right? Through tutor right. forensics, through text messages, maybe through social media postings that make that connection between Koberger and one or more of the deceased. I think we need that. I think we're going to get that. And although there's enough right now to get beyond a preliminary hearing with the element of premeditation, I think a trial, you know, prosecution is going to need more to to prove that. And I think to your point earlier, I think we're going to see that as they comb through a lot of the social media forensics. I just wanted to share that. Yeah, no, it's a good
0: point. Brian Claypool, a veteran trial attorney, uh, really a terrific lawyer. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us about this case on The Brief. And that's The Brief. I'm Greg Jarrett. Thanks for listening.